Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. theater lovers both out and proud and on the dl and welcome to another episode of broadway breakdown a podcast discussing the history and legacy of american theater's most exclusive address broadway this series is called tesori hour covering all five musicals that have bowed on broadway composed by miss janine tesori i am your host matt Koplik, the least famous and most opinionated of all the broadway podcast hosts and with me today is a composer lyricist librettist director dramaturg very accomplished young gentleman and i have trouble staying awake today so that just tells you the balance of power we have for this episode please welcome eli cohen Hello. Hello. How was your intro? Did you feel important enough? I did. I felt very, very important, which was a lovely feeling. When people uh, say your accomplishments out loud to you, do you go, wow, I just, I'm so tired hearing that. Like that exhausts Honestly, me. yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. And I definitely feel that, you know, on a Saturday after a full week of work. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. You have, a, you have a new job now. I do. I'm working as a producing assistant with Hal Luftig Company. That's amazing. Yeah, it's been really phenomenal so far. Everyone I work with is wonderful, and it's really cool to be working on those projects. Anything you can tell us, or or is everything hush-hush right now? Um, I mean, we're working on Plaza Suite. Previews start on February 25th, and opening is March 28th. Very exciting. Two big stars. It's going to be a super great show. So I will make sure not to say any opinions of And Just Like That today on the off <laughs> chance that Sarah Jessica Parker listens to this episode. I do love her. I love her very much. She's she's a queen. Have you ever seen First Wives Club? I have not, no. Okay. You need to watch First Wives Club because that might be my favorite Sarah Jessica Parker performance of all time. Okay, she, good to know. She plays the woman that Bette Midler's husband leaves her for uh, and is a total bimbo. And she's just so funny. She's so good. I love it. 
Yeah, because you never see SJP play roles like that. So it's nice to watch her play just like a total shallow airhead. Um, anyway, <laughs> Eli, what Tesori musical are we talking about today? We're talking about Violet. Yes, we are. Again, guys, not the color purple, but Violet. I, I wish everyone could see the face that I made to that joke. Oh, I will include this video as our promo so everyone can just see the cringe you made. Okay, so good. Knows. Fantastic. Fantastic. Eli's like, what the hell did I just sign up for? Um, so Eli, what? when did you become aware of Janine Tesori as Janine Tesori? And then what is your intro to Violet? Yeah, so I I became aware of Janine Tesori as Janine Tesori back in high school. And actually, part, a huge part of my introduction to her was Violet. Mm. So I grew up on the north side of Chicago in the north suburbs. Um, and at my high school, we did this thing called stunts. Um, which sounds like it should be an acronym for something, but it's not. It, but it is a musical that we do. It was when I was there. It was the first show every year, and we basically have the students there like write a musical and take existing songs and rewrite lyrics to them. Mm. And so I started as a writer on this my sophomore year. Ended up being a music director both my uh, junior and senior years. And the thing about being music director on those shows is the music directors are actually the ones in charge of picking the songs and rewriting the lyrics to the songs. So my senior year, we did a big fantasy musical, um, you know, about a kingdom with a dragon and an evil queen and all those things. Um, but one of the big songs in it at the, our finale actually is On My Way from Violet. And that was one of those songs that introduced me to Janine Desori and introduced me to a lot of her materials. Um, and at the, about the same time, I was, you know, falling in love with Fun Home and everything that that show is. But the... I think the song has a really special place to me because of, you know, being on this really early musical that sort of set the tone for me and taught me so much about lyric writing and about structuring shows mm-hmm. and about just how to work with groups, groups of people and collaborate in creating a new musical, which is like not an opportunity a lot of people get at that young age. And I always, and this is something that I felt like, you know, re-listening to the, the cast album this past week, going through this music is just her handle on counterpoint and her handle on how to weave all these different stories and narratives together using music taking these lyrics and combining them is just so apparent and it's really a incredible skill that she has that I don't think a lot of writers have to that level that really blows me away every time I listen to especially this show and it shows up in so many other shows as well yeah so this is our fourth episode penultimate one might say and something we have learned that is really, it doesn't sound like something that should be a trademark of a composer because a lot of people do it, but it really is with her is counterpoint. She's Mm -hmm. so good at mashing shit up. And part of that comes from her history as an arranger and as a music director, you know, she, she understands music in a way where like, you know, while she has her own, you know, versatile talent and skill and, and a great ear she's able to compose things that then just blend so well together. And, you know, when we did the Millie episode, the songs that she wrote for it that could then blend into previously written songs, it's just like astounding. Um, Like forget about the boys, its own song. And then for them to mash in Jimmy in there and then like a little bit of the title song as well. You're like, where does it come from? It's just, she's just so fantastic. Um, My experience with Violet is interesting. So first of all, you're famously younger than I am, but I'm pretty sure like, almost a decade, which is insane to me. I have never felt older in my life. So thank you very much. I mean, when, wait, I have a question, which is when, what year do you think that I graduated college? If uh, you had to guess. Well, you mentioned college as a recent thing. So you, I'm assuming you graduated college 
uh, last year, 2021? 2020. 2020. Okay. Okay. So you are not a full decade, but you're close to a decade. Uh, close. So you're then what, 23, 24? 23. 24 in April. No way. So I am 32 in March. So yes, I'm a geriatric, sir. And I do. No, you're not. I didn't shave. My face is puffy from all the wine I drank last night because I saw the tap dance kit at Encores and I needed alcohol for that. Uh, uh, so much talent, so misused. Anywho, not not a hot take. Everyone, everyone has been very public take. about it. Anyway, only only lukewarm takes exclusively. I don't know anyone who's been lukewarm about that production. It was bad. Anyway, we're not talking about the tap dance kid, although Joshua Henry is a connection. True. Violet. Uh, I so I, I already talked about it before. I really became aware of Janine Tesori as Janine Tesori when I saw Carolina change, especially when I realized that she had done Millie and the whole thing just sort of blossomed from there. I remember being aware of Violet when I went to Everybody Take a Shot, Stage Door Manor, Performing Arts Camp. And then when I went off to college, we did something called The O Show, which was the orientation review for new students every year. But the finale every year was always Bring Me to Light. It, we never did Violet, but it was always, always bring me to light. And I always thought it was just so lovely. And then uh, we'll talk about it as well with like sort of the legacy with this show. But I did see Violet on Broadway with Sutton Foster, only really knowing on my way and bring me to light was enraptured from like the word go with this thing. Like the moment it began, I was just so entwined and then uh, ended up seeing it three times. And we'll discuss a very specific emotional reaction I had about three quarters of the way through the show with a very specific line that uh, just devastated me. And I never stopped crying from that line to the end, Uh, but we'll get into that. So Eli, what is Violet about? Violet is about uh, a woman named Violet who, when she was a child, suffered a horrible accident uh, where an ax blade cut her face and is, has lived now for 13 years with this scar and is going on a journey to Tulsa, Oklahoma to meet a televangelist uh, who will hopefully heal her scar. And while she's on her way, she meets uh, two soldiers, uh, Flick, who is black, uh, Monty, who is white, and sort of connects with both of them. It becomes a bit of a love triangle and... There's also a lot of flashbacks with her and her father. It's uh, it's an interesting show. Are you familiar with the short story that it's based on, The Ugliest Pilgrim by Doris Peck? I am, yes. Yeah, I wasn't super familiar with it myself. I watched the short film Violet from, I think it's 1980, 1981 with Didi Khan. Yeah, what did you, yeah. Yeah, I watched that recently in preparation for this because that is the movie that sort of launched the writing for this. So something that's interesting with Janita Sori as a composer is that usually she is not the one that comes up with the ideas. She is usually approached to be the composer. Yes. And Violet is her first major musical. I think she had one before this called Galileo. At least she called it Galileo. That kind of came and went. No one saw it. And she even says like it was just her trying to be Sondheim. But this was really what kind of launched her as a composer because she thought she was mostly just going to be an arranger and a music director for her career. And she 
was watched uh, the short film came up on TV many years ago for her. And she was like, oh, that would make a good musical one day. And then a few years later, saw it again. And then was like, I want to get the rights to this. I want to compose this. I feel like I could do something with this. And she convinced Doris Betts to let her turn into a musical. She like very much like grabbed the bull by the horns. She got Brian Crawley on, which I don't know what their connection was because as far as I can tell, he hasn't, he hadn't done much before or after he was mostly a playwright, which is again, another theme with Desoria. She tends to work with playwrights, but I don't know what their, what their history was. Do you know anything about Mr. Brian Crawley? I do not know much about Mr. Brian Crawley. No. Well then Eli, you're a terrible dramaturg. I can't understand how you graduated. Nothing, college. I know. I know. <laughs> Just the worst. Uh, but so they worked on it for a few years. And so I was uh, reading, watching the TV movie and then reading the short story recently. I was surprised at how it deviates in the second half with the show uh, because the first half is very pretty much, you know, what we know. And there's a lot of lines that are directly lifted for the show, but there are a couple of changes, uh, two really big ones. One is uh, the love story. And then the other one is sort of the uh, origin of the scar that Violet has. Cause in the short story and in the movie, she's helping her dad fix a carburetor and it blows up in her face. And the show makes a very pointed change that it's an axe blade that came off the handle and hit her square in the face, which is far more brutal. Yeah. And creates a far more, uh, you know, uh, traumatizing disfigurement. Whereas if you watch the TV movie with Dee Dee Khan, you know, it's basically a C-shaped bruise on her cheek, you know? Um, like it could look like a birthmark almost, but the show makes it a much bigger point that it's, you know, she has a very uh, horrifying disfigurement. Yeah. Yes. So did you become aware of the short story before this podcast or did you get up on it? I had become, yeah, I had become aware of the short story and of the movie when I actually, I took a musical theater directing course in college mm-hmm. and for my final, I directed On My Way From Violet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as part of my research for that, I would read the search, read the short, read the short story, and watch the short film mm-hmm. just to get a better sense of the story, better sense of these characters, sort of where they came from and how they deviated and where they existed in the world and how they were, you know, modified to function better in a musical because a musical is a different thing where characters function differently. Yeah, they absolutely. So the character of Violet, how would we say she functions in the short story, the short film, and then the musical? Like, what are her connect what are the sorry what are the traits in all three that are that are related and then where do we think she alters in each yes one second i'm just pulling everything up on my computer how dare you pull up your notes how dare i pull up my notes it's my notes just wikipedia articles um <laughs> spark the memory which we're future refusing to come up right now but i can uh, i look it into the 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 short story and the musical because those are fresh in my brain hmm. i think it's really interesting because the short story is you know done entirely in first person it's a 12 page story and when you look at that it is so centered in her head and i think the musical really does that that everything is from her perspective everything is from where violet is seeing things but you also get more of a sense of the world around her that really puts you in the place of the world it's something i think there's a lot of commonalities between this and carolina change in that sense where there are two stories that take place pretty much at the same time in the history in similar uh, places in the South during the civil rights movement. Um, and you get a much stronger sense of the greater world around her. And I think that's really interesting in the context of musical theater because of the context in which Violet was written in sort of this late nineties 
reaction to the mega musical phase to sort of the end, the tapering off of that. I mean, Violet, you know, comes out of this time around ragtime, which is a mega musical and tries to deal with these issues at a very macro scale at a very sort of top down view of having, you know, oh, here are all these famous people and all of the characters themselves have trope names and, you know, mother, father, and then Klaus and Sarah obviously have names, but, you know, this idea of these people, characters are stand-ins for, for the idea of this time period of this idea of race in the United States. And whereas you have stories that Tesori works on, like Carolina Change, like Violet, that are much more a bottom-up view on history, that are much more a, a, this is what individual people are going through at the time. And to me, the musical does such a good job because this is something that Tesori clearly cares so much about and bringing out those stakes of what that period in time was like and what that period of time meant. And I think that that's from, from I don't have it up in front of me because it just does not want to come up, but um, where is it? I cannot for the life of me find this. What are you trying to find? I'm just the, uh, one sec. Just the Wikipedia article on the Violet short film that does not want to, there it is. I cannot. Um, oh, it has nothing on it. Amazing. Yeah, I was going to say, from what um, I recall, there's not much on there. There's not, no, there's nothing on it. Um, it's Although fine. it did win the Oscar, so it has it that did. going for it. It, it did. Um, but, and then, you know, it's one of the things that once you, once you put those things on, screen and you have faces to it it changes the dynamic because you know it's not just a visualization in your head it's something that you can see so clear in front of you and the reality of race in this country is really clear but i also think that the time that that was written in was also very different the time the musical was written you sort of have the 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 time period that these stories are written in really and who who is interacting with them and what those people's values and importances and what they were highlighting in the story shifting from artist to artist, which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but well, I think the character of Violet really, we, it really, because of the change of the scar being the ax blade in the musical, it really sort of center, it really clarifies just how strong of an impact that it was on her psyche by having that really clear description of what it is. And as opposed to the movie where it's a much, you know, smaller, much less noticeable, mark on her face and you end up with a character who is far more you you can empathize with the with sort of the intensity of the trauma far more when you have this more violent more traumatic experience as opposed to the milder one that seems to be a reflection on vanity and I know that in the musical they talk a lot about her when she meets the preacher she talks a lot about the idea of like maybe you think I'm vain this isn't about vanity this is about you know having a sense of self and it really gets through to the psychological aspect rather than it feeling like it is a vanity thing. Yeah. She, the line she says to the preacher is it may be uh, vain to worry if you're ugly, but if you're worse than ugly, if you're disfigured, that's not vanity, that's pain. And yeah. there's a truth to that. Um, I mean, we talk about, you know, sort of beauty's only skin deep, all that stuff, which is, you know, one of the major themes of the show, obviously, but the pain that one feels is still real. It's still there. And you can't uh, sweep it aside for the general statement of, well, beauty is only skin deep. You know, it's like you got to kind of, which a lot of people tell Violet a lot throughout the show. And the fact that it still doesn't sink in for her kind of says something like you can't just give people, uh, you know, tea bag metaphor quotes and hope that it sinks in. Like you got to actually dig into the uh, psychological uh, torment that they're feeling. The thing about, 
So another thing that I realized with the short story slash movie and then the show is they do move the timeline by, by a few years. I believe the short story and movie take place in 1969 and then the show they have it take place in 1964 and that five-year difference is huge it's huge it's enormous it's yeah well so actually speaking of tap dance kid i was telling someone about this today the tap dance kid was a 1980s musical based off of a 1970s children's book uh by louise uh fitzhugh who also wrote harriet the spy which if no one's read it read harriet the spy it's fucking incredible but the show took place in the 80s the story took place in the 70s and for encores they moved it to the 1950s now that is a that also is a huge difference right of 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 time but also there's something to be said for the african-american experience before the civil rights movement and after the civil rights movement uh there is there are obviously things that haven't changed but a lot of things that have and the same thing thing goes with violet like Moving it to 1964, it's the thick of the civil rights movement. A lot yep. of stuff is really happening. It's very potent. 1969, it's a little more, um, I don't want to say it's calmer. It's, it's just a little uh, more at a distance with those five years. Plus, also, it's the heat of Vietnam. Right. So that's a little more on everyone's minds. Whereas putting it in 1964 in the musical, Vietnam is starting to brew. It has not become yep. a real threat yet. And... I feel like a lot of the reasons why they moved it when they did was so that the character of Flick could be much more of a character than he is in the short story and the film, which I really appreciate. The writers really saw Flick as an underused character and brought him much more to the forefront. Whereas in the story and the movie, and I think this also goes with Violet and her scar and how she's characterized, the ending of both the story and the movie is more kind of cutesy and rom, not rom-commy, but like romantic because it's between Violet and Monty. Like Monty is this beautiful yeah. man who ends up falling for her and says to her, you know, when you go to the preacher, come back here afterwards. And I'll be waiting here on this day all day long. And, you know, yeah. you and I are going to live, are going to live our lives together. And she doesn't believe him. And she goes to the preacher Obviously, he doesn't do Jack because he's essentially a con artist. and Because he can't, because that's not a thing that anyone can do. Exactly. Which, in a way, she does always kind of understand. But she, because she's so desperate, she thinks oh, she that, says a line about that in like the first in the first sentence where the the old in the first sentence the first uh, number on my way where the old lady makes a comment about it and she's like and she basically says if you if you're desperate enough you'll believe anything yeah acknowledging that about herself yeah she says that to Flick at one point too she's like if you needed it bad enough you'd believe yeah. it and she does she needs it bad enough and she in the story and in the in the so in the in the short film she goes. So, uh, yeah, sorry, I, my, my brain is all over the place. Um, in the short story in the film, the preacher is not there. She shows up, he's out of town. He's at a different place selling merchandise. The, they are much more transparent about the fact that he and the church are much more about money and selling mm-hmm. the brand and the imagery. So she's with you know his assistant and she prays to, her, uh, to herself at the altar in hopes of a miracle. And in the movie, she knows that the miracle didn't happen. And she goes back to the bus stop the next day in vain, thinking that Monty won't be there. In the short story, she doesn't know if the miracle has happened. And she says, I'm not going to check the mirror. I'm going to go back to the bus uh, bus station 
And if Monty can recognize me, I'm going to run away because that means my miracle didn't happen. But if he, uh, sorry, if he does recognize me, I'm going to run away. If he doesn't, that means my miracle happened and we can live together. And in the short story, she shows up, he recognizes her. She tries to run away because the miracle didn't happen, but he catches up to her. And that's how the story ends. It's literally her saying, no, praise God, he's catching me. And in the film, you know, she goes back despondent and he's there and it's all sweet and they're going to live happily ever after. Right. The musical, they make the change that the preacher is there. He pretty much tells her, you know, she's incurable. She has to live with what she has. She has a breakdown. She thinks her miracle happens. She goes back. Monty recognizes her. She has a breakdown. Monty goes away and she and Flick end up together, which which I think is a much better choice. Uh, It's a much stronger connection that she has with Flick. Uh, or at least in the musical, in the, in the in the story in the movie, like Flick is kind of there. There's like a moment where she wants him to sleep with her that night because I think she doesn't think she can get Monty. And then when it ends up Monty being the one who comes into her bed that night, she's like, "Oh, fantastic! Everything's going as I always hoped it would be." Whereas in the show, she wants it to be Flick because Flick is the one that she's connecting to the most. He's more of a grown up. They have a connection there's a there's there's a heat to them and then when monty ends up being the one sleeping in her bed i don't think she's necessarily happier i think she's just sort of feels a little more um what sort of one i'm looking for she feels a little more uh not justified but maybe a little more at peace that someone so attracted to her will still sleep with her if that makes sense yeah. and the way that you know the show is about someone who is rather shallow because she's in so much pain. Anyway, I'm losing, I'm losing the plot, but this is, this is, this is one of the major changes. Well, it's, 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 it's the thought in the show that, you know, she, of course, this person who she feels like she's connecting with deeply isn't attracted to her because, you know, she thinks that she's not, she talks and talks and talks about, she thinks she's not attractive on the surface, but she also deep down thinks that she's not attractive because of that beneath the surface as well, mm-hmm. that she has some such deep seated insecurities that she has all this trauma that she thinks that that makes her, unlovable and that no one's ever going to love her deeply and when she looks at this person who is the deeper person who is the more mature person she looks at him and thinks of course this person isn't gonna end up coming in and sleeping with me and being with me and wanting me because i am i do not have what he has i don't have this depth and understanding of the world i don't have this experience i don't have this you know both external and internal beauty that i think she feel that it the show really makes clear that she feels like she lacks um, and that at the end of the show, when she does find it, what's so clear is that that is what he loves about her is that she does have this internal beauty. She does have this, and she also has, you know, ex- her own kind of external beauty, but she really is a person who, how, who, these are the experiences that make her strong and that make her beautiful and that make her enticing to him. My face is mean, 80 years worth of tears, might scrub it clean as hers and as strong. Jesus, don't wait so long to make my face okay. At last the North Carolina border. And I, and I, and I, I am on my way. The character of Monty in the show, do we think he actually loves Violet or do we think he loves who he is when he's with her? Oh, he loves who he is when he's with her. I'm talking more about her relationship with Flick. No, no, I, 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 yeah. I know, I know, but I, I'm bringing it back to Monty for a second, just because, yes, yes, yes. because 
by altering her relationship to both of them and slightly altering their characters, the whole purpose of the story then changes, right? Right. And whereas in the story and the film, it's, you know, sort of a what's inside conquers all. And, you know, it's it's like almost like a gender reversal on Beauty and the Beast uh, with a much more uh, softer heart to it. And then the musical, it's sort of... The musical also, if you if you are familiar with the original version, which is longer, a little slower, and a little meaner, uh, they when they brought it to Broadway, they trimmed it a bit. You know, they streamlined it, and made it a one act instead of a two act. They cut some stuff out. They also rewrote Monty's song. Uh, he had a different song. I forget what it was called. But then they they wrote a new one for him called "Last Time I Came to Memphis." But they also made him a bit nicer because he used to be much more of a dick and very and like it was because they wanted it to make it originally so very clear that Violet should not be with Monty. He's just such an asshole. And then on Broadway, especially because like Colin Donnell is, you know, a sweetheart, they made Monty a nicer guy. Uh, and it's not that he, that Violet shouldn't be with him because he's a dick. Violet shouldn't be with him because like he can't handle really being with Violet. He yeah. likes the idea of being with her because he, you know, he's a, he becomes a nicer person. He becomes a smarter person. He becomes a more well-rounded person when he's around her. And she shouldn't exist to be like his life coach. She shouldn't exist to, you know, make him look better. She should be with someone who uh, compliments her. And I don't mean right. compliments like uh, flatters. I mean, you know, they, you know, they're entwined the yin and yang of it all, which is exactly what Flick is. You know, Flick challenges her, but also, uh, understanding her and easing her pain at the same time and her vice versa. And I think that's what makes the show work so well. Whereas in the short story, you know, Violet is kind of an unreliable narrator in the short story because she's very observant of other people, but she's not able to observe what they truly think of her because she's so she is so mentally prepared herself for everyone to be horrified by her and to not like her. And so she has sort of created this wall around her. Much like Shrek in the episode we just covered, uh, Violet and Shrek like to put up walls because of how they look and how they think society perceives them. And what I appreciate is that the show challenges that mentality of hers, whereas the short story like never goes very deep into it. You as the reader kind of have to read everything um, and take it with a grain of salt. In the same way, like when you read Lolita and Humbert Humbert, who is a pedophile, writes these romantic prose about his relationship with a 12-year-old. And you're like, okay, but what's actually happening here? Because there's what you're telling me and then there's what's actually happening. And it's sort of the same thing with Violet where it's like, okay, but what is it that someone's actually trying to say to you? Like she has this whole interaction with Flick in the book and how like, you know, uh, pissed off he gets at her when she says, when she goes to the preacher, uh, when she wants to get totally transformed, she doesn't want black skin, no offense. And she's like, and then he got all pissy. I'm like, yeah, he got all pissy. You were super racist. Oh my God. No, but I, I think it's really great that the that when they moved it to Broadway, they really took a much more nuanced take on what her relationship with Monty was and mm. why it wasn't working. I think, you know, it's so easy to go to the classic of he's a dick and, you know, she thinks that she'll be happy with him and that he's all she'll ever get. But I think this idea of like, she, this is someone who genuinely likes her because he, she makes him feel like he's a better version of himself, but at the same time gets nothing out of that relationship is a much more nuanced and complex take about the reality of relationships and about that relationships 
can be one-sided and not be, you know, necessarily toxic or abusive, but still not be something that is healthy or effective for one of the people in the relationship and the importance of highlighting the nuance of that and really exploring it. And I think that's something that Tessori does a lot, does so well, is really finding nuance in her storytelling and really finding the nooks and crannies of things that don't get explored often and really finding ways to breathe life into them in a way that people are able to take in and understand in, in, in ways that are really unique to musical theater of being able to see that relationship because you have two people, you know, singing about it in a way that you're not going to get in a book or in a movie because you have this really emotional reaction from everyone where you can see this, this one person has such this, this has the, such a strong emotional reaction and the other person doesn't. And it's, it's heartbreaking almost for Monty of being like, no, I really, I want this person who makes me feel like a better version of myself and her just being like, you're here, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're okay. But also deep down knowing that that's not what she's looking for. Promise me, Violet, promise you'll do this once your healing's through. Money. Come to this station anytime Sunday. I'll be here for you. I'll be waiting by the roadside. Did you ever see Bridget Jones's diary? I didn't know. Eli, your stock is plumbing. I know. I'm up just. Now. I'm just killing it today. I'm just. There, I'm batting zero. Batting zero. Uh, but you're aware of Bridget Jones's Diary, yes? Yes. It's another film with a love triangle. Uh, it's, you know, a weird sort of take on Pride and Prejudice. But, you know, uh, Renee Zellweger, you know, it's between Hugh Grant and Colin Firth, essentially, for a lot of the movie. And a lot of the movie makes you... You, we as an audience understand that Hugh Grant is the worst, but they have a lot of chemistry and whatnot. And when it comes to the final moment with the two of them, he says to her, you know, like, I need you. Uh, I'm, I'm a mess without you. You know, we belong together. And she takes a beat and she goes, right. That's not really enough for me, though. And that's kind of it with Violet and Monty. Like, and, and, to, and to be fair, in the musical, it's not like Violet knows, uh, has this realization the entire time. She knows that Monty is not a total grown-up and it's not I, I don't like to live in a world where like nothing is anyone's fault because we all inherit trauma and it's all society like we have at some point we do have to take responsibility for our actions but yeah. in the tweaks that they've made to the show they do give Monty a little more uh sympathy because Monty is white he is male and he is very attractive and to live life like that especially in like, you know, America and in the South and from like, you know, the 1940s to the 1960s, there's a, there's a lot that's handed to you, which then causes arrest development. And there's, and there's so little you can actually offer as a person. And to his credit, Monty kind of starts to realize that in the show with his meeting of Violet and with Flick. And he does want to do better, but it's just a matter of whether he's actually able to and whether it's Violet's responsibility to help him get there. And there's she gets a lot of joy from being with him because again, he is so attractive and there's a, there's a sense of worth that she gets from him wanting her. But 
when she has her breakdown and realizes that the miracle didn't happen and sort of this is who she's left with as herself, being with Monty in that way is not enough anymore. She can't be with someone just because they like who they are when they're with her. She can't be with someone just because, uh, you know, she's a a catalyst for uh, doing better. She she needs someone who will actually be someone with her. Um, you know, you can't you can't develop and grow yourself if you're worried about someone else's development and growth. You have to worry about you and and understand that like you know someone else is going to be there to catch you just as you catch them and Monty won't be there to catch her the moment it gets realer for her he won't be able to do it I mean well also looking at that you know the perspective of the musical theater canon at large that is such a break from tradition with how female characters have been treated in musical theater you know going back even particularly to the golden age musicals where Female characters, you know, pretty much exist exclusively to make the men better person, whether, better, you know, the better person and support him in whatever he may want and have no growth themselves, whether it be, you know, Carousel, The King and I, or Music Man. All three of those shows have female characters who, over the course of the story, don't really grow and solely exist to support the man and make him a better person. And adjusting this show, which is, you know, has the most prominent female composer probably ever in musical theater having heard looking at the show and being like no we're going to give this female character agency we're going to let this female character have a choice and not solely exist for that purpose says so much about who's writing it and also that shift in perspective and the importance of having those characters with agency and giving women the opportunity to make their own choices and exist for themselves and for their own betterment and not just to support men which is not why women exist right well so there shows like King and I and, and uh, Carousel are interesting because those are shows where the women have their shit figured out much more than the men. And the male arc on those shows are larger than those of the women because the women don't have as far to go. But that being said, I feel like Violet as a character is sort of a combination of, it's very interesting you mentioned Carousel and King and I, because I do feel like Violet in a way is a mixture of Anna and Julie in the sense of like, she yes. makes messy, bad choices like Julie but she's intelligent like Anna and can understand, you know, the uh, the sort of um, hypocrisy of herself when she makes said bad choices. Like she she has a moment with Flick when they had like that big confrontation. She was like, I know Monty's just a boy, but like, I don't regret sleeping with him and being with him right now. Like, like, screw it. I deserve some happiness. That's actually very Julie Jordan of her. Fun fact, Eli, you don't know this about me. Carousel is my favorite musical. I think it is good to know. I think it's top three hardest musicals to do well because a lot of dumb directors don't understand it. Uh, But you basically have to treat it like Tennessee Williams. You know, it's it's I completely no, I completely agree with that statement. Yeah, it's working class people making a lot of really bad decisions. Uh, And but but to your point, it is true. Billy does have the the most defined arc in the show because he has the furthest to go. Right. And 
what I like about something like Violet is that she gets to have that big messy arc. Um, there, are, there. Are, I would argue there are much more golden age musical comedies where the women are much more supportive of the men in terms of their storylines. Uh, yes. And it, it, you could also argue it's an easy way out. It's like, well, no, like the, the woman has her shit figured out. So she doesn't need to change. Like she's waiting for the guy to change. It's like, well, she shouldn't have to wait for him. She should go off and find someone else who's got their shit together. Um, but, you know, also welcome to life where welcome to life where people don't have their shit together ever but yeah Ooh, okay something i do want to talk about we're, we're gonna go all over the place with the show as we've gone all over the place with all of Story hour as i go all over the place with this podcast something that the sh- another major theme of the show that we haven't discussed yet that is nowhere to be found in the movie or in the short story is violet's relationship with her father the father so violet's mom died when she was very very young she never really knew her and all we really ever get to know about her is uh, a bible that she left behind that wrote you know all these notes in the margins her thoughts her opinions her you know it's like a diary uh, written into this bible and when violet was 12 or 13 she had the accident with her father with the axe blade and basically became just the two of them until he died a few years prior to the events of the musical the story in the movie he's almost barely mentioned uh mostly just about you know this this thing happened and again part of that is because uh the accident in the story in the movie is much less horrific and much more of you know they did something together and something happened and it affected her whereas um in the musical he's chopping wood and his blade is the thing that comes off that hits her so there's a lot more kind of blame and shame to come with that origin story and there the musical includes all these flashbacks with her father and then a breaking point that exists in sort of a purgatory limbo let's say with her father is that fair to say i think that's a very good description of that scene yeah yeah, basically, Violet. So, yeah, up until Violet's time with the preacher, all of her flashbacks with her father have been relatively lighthearted. He teaches her yeah. how to play poker uh, so she can learn arithmetic and she can fend for herself with boys in the future because he understands now that she has this scar. She's not going to be pursued for her looks. She's not really going to be pursued as a romantic prospect. And she's already being treated as a pariah in the community so she has to kind of be her own strong person if if she's going to have any connection with people after he's eventually gone because that's something as a parent you understand is that should everything play out how it's supposed to your child's going to spend a lot of time on earth without you um so he teaches her poker they have you know arguments about her mother all these other things we see you know the night that she had the accident and when he takes her to the doctor, he carries her through the woods in the middle of the night. And then she goes to the preacher. He tells her he's not going to heal her. And she kind of starts to go through a breakdown. She starts to decide she's going to heal herself. She's going through all of her psalms. She's going through the whole preacher's bit. And she has, uh, she snaps. And then she sings a line that I tell you, Eli, when I first heard this in the theater, as someone who was not that familiar with the show, I started to sob and I didn't stop until the show was over, which is when she's singing, 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 and the preacher's about to walk off stage and she stops no and she goes, look at me. No one will look at me. 
No one will dare to spend the time it takes to look at me, to really look at me. What did I do to make you angry at me? My God, this is so hard. Look at me, look at me. Can you imagine what it's like when people look at me? Look at me. Is this I started to cry. I didn't stop crying. And it was bad. All three times I saw the show, just cried the entire time. And that look at me then morphs into her as a child and her as an adult singing to her father, both the memory of and the figment of, of her imagination about looking at her and coming to terms about the accident, what happened, the aftermath of it all. We learned that, you know, the night that it happened, he took her to a, to a doctor who was drunk, sewed her up really poorly. So the scar can never properly heal, waited way too long to try to get her fixed by a plastic surgeon. Um, and so she blames him for pretty much all of it and wants closure, but isn't sure how to get it. And then they just have, as I said, this scene with each other in a purgatory limbo area where they kind of make their peace. Forgive me, you're only star. Look how bright, look how strong, look how beautiful you are. And it's hard to tell if she's like I want to know. I would if I if this were a movie, I if I were like a really big asshole, I would have a shot where like the janitor walks into the chapel, sees Violet like having this imaginary conversation with her father. It's like so heartfelt and brutal, and just be like, "Oh, I'll mop later," and like walks back out. <laughs> just so we know, like in reality, what is happening. You know, but I, but I also think that's such a like great, great visualization of it because, it, you know, it is a religious experience. That's what she's having. And I think, you know, religion is a mechanism that people use to make sense of the world around them. And that's exactly what she's doing in this moment. You know, for some people now, like people use therapy, but for her, that's what this is. And this is her therapy was going on this journey and seeking this healing and coming to a conclusion of, I don't care if this man isn't going to give me healing, then I'll fucking do it myself. Yeah. No, it's true. That is sort of um, the moral of, you know, Book of Mormon is like religion. When you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous. And the fact that we have so many religions in this world and everyone thinks theirs is right. But it comes down to the fact that like you need something to get yourself out of bed every morning. And for a lot exactly. of people, like they find solace in that. Um, yeah, She has a vision, you know, she has her own vision, whether it's divine from God or if it's through her own mental breakthrough. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are 9,000 therapists in the audience that night going, good for you, girl. You just saved yourself 10 years of therapy with this closure. Um, but she, yeah, she, the, the line that kind of breaks through is, you know, they're having this argument and she's like, you know, there's no end to it. Not for me. Uh, you know, you don't understand suffering and, you know, you did this, you did that. She goes, I think, that you did it on purpose. And she, and I don't think she even really believes it herself. She just wants to say something hurtful to her father. She needs to get this. She needs someplace to get this pain out. And she hasn't had anywhere to get it out yet. You know, it's just been brewing like poison inside of her. And she just flicks it all out there. And then he sings a song that I think any parent in that audience probably sobs at when he sings, you know, this is all I could do. I got you out of bed every morning, made sure you were fed, got you dressed. That's all I knew how to do. And I tried to make you stronger. And that's all I knew how to do. 
it's it's always those parent songs. Those are they're always just in every musical. There, whenever you have like a musical about a young person, there's a song by the parent. It's always so well done, mm-hmm. and it always gets every parent in the audience. Yeah, well, because I think, <laughs> I mean, one of the major themes with Violet and her father in this show that again that is you know added to the show. It's not in any other version of the right. story. Is the idea of kind of understanding your parents are human beings who mess up and for the most parents just simply try to do their best. You know, you obviously, we obviously have some out there who just should never be parents and, you know, their children are an extension of their own vanity, right. Of, you know, I'm going to raise a clone of me to, you know, because I'm the best and there should be more of me in this world. Like I always really hate uh, when people say to other people, you know, you need to have children because there needs to be more of you out there. Like, you know, we have, have you never heard no, this? I know. I, I de- no, I definitely have. I've definitely heard people say this. And, you know, it's it's that exact idea where it's like, no, it's it's for more people, not for more of... All people are different. They all have their own thing going on. First of all, have we learned nothing from Men Just Like That? I know we said we were going to talk about it that much, but like Charlotte and Rock, have we learned nothing from Men Just Like That? Oh my God. You cannot control who your child's going to become. You, what you do is you, you... You want... You as a parent should be trying to raise a person that is going to contribute to the world, right? Who's going to go out there and help make the world a better place, not a worse place. You don't want someone who's going to just be a carbon copy of you or is going to idolize you. And a lot of, a lot of mental turmoil comes from reckoning between child and parent of, you know, things that parents did, unintentionally to mess their child up or intentionally and a lot of forgiveness that has to come with that and that is sort of something that happens with Violet and her father is the forgiveness of understanding that her father did the best he could he did not always do the right thing but all the pain that she carries with her she has to let go of she's going to continue on with her life because if she keeps holding on to it she's going to just Best case scenario, she's going to be stunted emotionally for the rest of her life. Worst case scenario, it eats away at her and she dies prematurely, which I think is very possible considering how things go in this musical. So the fact that she's able to let it go allows her to, I don't know, allows her to become a fuller person and, and go out into the world with a stronger sense of achievement hopefulness you know flick says to her when she got flicks the so when she comes back she thinks that she has the miracle right she's like i'm not going to look in the mirror i'm not going to touch it. that's all temptation all the features need to be settled and it's not just the scar right she talks about the entire show she wants gene tierney eyes ava gardner's eyebrows judy garland's chin um which i do love that brian carley adds judy garland in there as a as a beauty uh goal because judy garland was never considered to be like a glamorous, beautiful movie star. So I do love that Violet's like, listen, I can recognize that Judy Garland has an amazing chance. <laughs> and she, like, she just, she's poured over all these, all these magazines. Anyway, she comes it back. Also, you know, it also is a lyric where I'm like, ah, yes, this was written by, you know, a gay man. Is he gay? I don't know. But, it, but as soon as I thought that, I'm like, it must have been, someone gay must have influenced this lyric. <laughs> it's the only answer. I mean, there's, there's so many 
well okay so we'll get into that actual song in a bit because that's a it's a good song it's the the number the number of movie stars and gay icons that are referenced in that song i'm like either ryan crawley is gay or he is the ally to end all allies but what a great description right but she when she comes back to the bus station to greet monty monty not only does he recognize her right away but he's you know like i tried to tell you your scar still there, blah, blah, blah. But Flick can recognize the change in her persona from the confidence that she got from thinking she had changed. And when she re- when she recognizes that element that she was possessing, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just, we know that there's going to be a new chapter of her life where, yes, she will not be physically different, but she will be able to kind of take charge of her life in a much more... Um, healthy way. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, I think I think something this makes me think of, which is, you know, very obviously the sort of structure of the story is the, you know, the macro myth, the hero's journey sort of structure, this idea that, you know, you go, you go on a journey, you enter a land that is new and you change and you come back and people realize that you've changed. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how it's different for, it's very different for men and women, the way that the journey goes through the idea that the women come, that when this story normally takes place, um, women come back and they're rejected because of their, because they're different, because they've sort of, you know, uncovered this truth and society refuses to um, accept them for that, which is this very, you know, going back to sort of Adam and Eve and that whole thing. Um, but I think it's really interesting that, you know, I, I don't necessarily think this is intentional. It, you know, might've been because the concept of the hero's journey in, Storytelling was very popular in the 80s and 90s and continues to be, obviously. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, how conscious it was in sort of the structure of the story, but I think it's very interesting that you get both of those reactions from the two men. Um, one, one being like, being one, base, one of them basically being like, you were never going to change and this is always the way I wanted you. And the other person being like, no, you did change and you are a better person for it, even if it's not in the way that you expected. Yeah. And I think that, embracing that reality of that's that's why we as audience members enjoy journeys because we like seeing characters change we like the we like knowing that change is possible and i think that you know as as humans are both scared of change and really excited by it and i think that this is a show that embraces that exact idea of change not being what you expect for her journey i know you feel like nothing's changed but look at you you're different you're not the girl you were when you began. And look at me, cause when you look at me, you see the man I've always wanted to be. Look at me, sweet Jesus, look at me. When you do, I'll find the words to tell you. How I love you. I've been waiting. Let's talk about some actual song songs here because we've been talking a lot yeah. about themes and plot and all this wonderful crap. First of all, the style of this music. How would we describe the style of this music? I mean, I it's it's such a great collection of folk and country and honky talk rock and you know, also the contemporary musical theater energy of being in your own head and exploring your emotions. And I think that Tesori, throughout her, you know, library of scores, does such a good job finding a finding the musical genre of the place and time that she is in, and really embracing it as part of that world, and combining it to make it sound 
uniquely her and unique musical theater. There were some things that I was, when I was listening back through, I'm like, this sounds just like this one bit from, you know, Fun Home. And like, which just was, I forget what it was. It was toward the end of the show, but it was just super evocative of a moment from Fun Home. And I'm like, yes, of course, this is, you know, the same composer in the most exciting and like loving way. And you have, you know, On My Way and all this gospel music as well. And you have these, those amazing jazz and blues numbers in Memphis that I think just set the stage and set the world so effectively, again, in a way that you, aren't able to do without that the context that music exists in that you're going to have during a short story because you, there's not music playing during a short story yeah it's I mean, and janine tesori has talked about this with the show like you know she felt uniquely qualified to write this score because she spent many years as a music producer in uh, i think nashville and right. you know has lived with this kind of music for so long that it was just so easy for her to tap into it. And it's the only kind of music that really would fit this kind of show. And it does elevate the material in a lot of ways because the the, the story is relatively emotionless, I find, mostly because Violet is such a cold narrator because she has to be, right? You know, she has that yeah. barrier. And, you know, one wonders, well, how do you make a character like that sing? It's like, well, first of all, she has the barrier because she has all the emotions inside. I do really enjoy that at the beginning, they tap into something that is in the beginning of the short story, which is she's waiting at the at the bus stop for the bus. And in the short story, she's you know, she basically just is sitting there like a pariah and she's judging everything around her. And the musical opens much more with a kind of somber tone, which is the musical that we yeah. think we're going to get. A young woman with a scar, earnest, oh, this is going to be a weepy musical. But as soon as she starts to kind of have this stirring emotion uh musical moment they're like uh with the water in the well of her younger self singing and it it gets more emotional gets cut off by someone in her neighborhood calling for his dog sees violet says are you going someplace and then is this a suitcase is it mine am i waiting by the candy stand Beneath the Greyhound station sign have i got a ticket in my hand stupid People of Spruce Pine are stupid. Lord, Which turns the audience's expectations, right? Because we think, here's this young, emotional, scarred woman. And then we find out, oh no, she's intelligent. She has a sense of humor. She's bitter and she's sarcastic. She's many a thing. And when she sings to the Lord and, and makes, a, makes a deal with him that we know that is slighted in her favor. I'll call the whole trip off if Leroy Evans looks me in the face. Nope, I win. He's terrified. And I think that we've done so much already in less than three minutes with our lead character to show all the different facets of her and make us want to follow her to the ends of the earth. And then it just, the fact that it goes into surprise, which then goes into On My Way, just is wonderful musical theater 101 of introductory of character, grand big slam bam opening. and. Yeah, I, I mean, I, have, I I can't intellectualize it anymore because it just gets to an emotional state where like, I can't describe it any more than just it's chemical, right? Yeah. But on a it's, musical it's, theater level of structure, it is just very well done. No, the structure and it's brilliant. And just the, the idea of giving you what you expect when you hear the pitch going into, like you said, of Water for the Well, of hearing that, you know, a, you know, a little girl singing this thing and you're like, oh no, I'm gonna spend, you know, the next 90 minutes crying. And then yeah. creating that character and going into that big 
beautiful, exciting number of On My Way, which is musically just builds so well and introduces so many themes from throughout the show that you are able to grab onto throughout it and really ground you in this world and introducing also all of these characters. This idea of there's so many different people going on journeys for like, from, you know, I'm going to go get barbecue to I need to get a preacher to fix my face. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that idea of, you know, you never know what the person sitting next to you is really thinking about or really wants or really needs is mm-hmm. such a powerful statement starting a show, especially a show about where she ends up not knowing, you know, what she really wants and what she really needs. Absolutely. And humor is such a great way to disarm an audience, right? Because laughter is a way of sort of letting your guard down and and it eases people into your story, especially if you're going to tell something as, um, you know, for lack of a better word, depressing as this story, you do need to have humor in it if you're going to make it tolerable. And I think like the first 10 minutes of Violet is as good an example as any of doing all of that, of stirring your soul, making you laugh, making you emotionally engaged, musically engaged, uh, challenging you. It's just, it's very well done opening. Uh, let's talk about the gay song. And let's by the talk gay- about the gay song. But you know what I'm talking about, yes? I know which one, yes. One where she's singing about all the movie stars she wants to look like, of course. Yes, yes. all to pieces is what it's called. Thank you. It's right there in front of me, of course. Yes. So like, if Violet has an I want song, this is kind of it. Because Surprised isn't really an I want song. It's a, it, it's a, it, <sighs> I don't know. How would you describe surprised and and on my way? Like on my way is sort of like a, here's where I am. Here's where I'm going. And surprises, I guess, sort of the same way. Neither one of them are necessarily I want. They're not like this, like this is what I want in life. It's more like, here's where I'm going to go. All to pieces is more of an I want song, but it's so much, it's a very literal I want song because yes. And very shallow because she's because her want is obviously she wants the scar taken away, but it's much more than that. She wants the preacher to basically perform plastic surgery on her. She wants everything about herself to be different down to her toes, up to her hair. And she has a laundry list of all the movie stars she wants to look like, but not just that, a very specific thing from each of them. Like you can just imagine in that Bible, she has a serial killer picture. In the margins and like it's scribbled, like all the like different like drafts of it that she scribbled into margins of like page after page constructing this face. Absolutely. And like, there's probably a leaflet in there where she has cut out from various magazines, all the different elements that she's glued together, which probably looks like something of a monster face, but in her own mind, it looks like the ultimate beautiful face. Um, She wants Jean Tierney eyes, uh, try Monty's mouth on for size. Um, (laughs) <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, but she wants Jean Tierney eyes. She wants uh, she, she wants uh, Sid Charisse's lips and nose. She wants um, a hint of mystery like uh, Bridget Bardot or Brigitte Bardot. She wants uh, Judy Garland's chin. She wants uh, Elkie Summer's hair, Grace Kelly's little nose, Rita Hayworth's skin, Ava Gardner eyebrows, it's just very specific, all patchwork, you know, kind of stuff. First of all, why do we call this the gay song, Eli? Because of all the gay icons. All the gay icons. Yes. All of them. 
what do we think this woman would look like that that Violet is describing? I mean, the thing that I think so interesting is I one of the things that I think is so interesting about this song is not just is that this woman not only would she look, you know, so far away from what Violet thinks she looks like, but it's people who live lives that are so far away from Violet's life that I find so interesting. This idea of like, you know, the the only two ways she can imagine life are her living in this small town full of stupid people, you know, living with this trauma, living with this car, people aren't able to look at her, and a life where you are beautiful and the people look at you constantly are these, these, you know, two extremes that, you know, if this is bad, this obviously must be good. And I think, you know, creating this, you know, Frankenstein's monster of um, gay icons is definitely, I think, an interesting direction to go. And I think, I always find it interesting when I, you know, find moments in musical theater where I'm like, this is for all the gay men who are in the audience of this show. This is so they can self-insert themselves onto this character mm. um, who is not in any way a gay man. But um, I, I think it's really interesting talking about someone who would probably not actually be that attractive because when you pull out a single feature of someone that is attractive, usually because it's really stark and really compelling. And if you have a face of only stark and compelling features, it is overwhelming and loud. Violet is someone who, if she were born 20 years later and had uh, much greater resources, would probably become a uh, plastic surgery cat lady, you know, of just, well, because there's um, that like facial dysmorphia that some people yeah. have where it's like they just, it's its own kind of uh, mania. You, yeah. you, what you're seeing is not necessarily the reality. And that is stemmed so deeply in her trauma and the many years of her avoiding mirrors of her, of, you know, having her own vision of what she looks like, of how the world sees her. And it is both funny and heartbreaking to listen to her do this song. And what's so fun and what's so interesting is like, this song is an up-tempo. This is not like a manic, uh, you know, breakdown of a number. This is a fun bop it moves along the way Sutton Foster performs. It is with such joy that you kind of don't realize the heartbreak that's underneath all of it until you know, she has of- spent also that she spent hours and hours and hours pouring over the faces of these people. She thinks are beautiful because that's all that she wants is that all that she can think about is mm-hmm. how, how could I look like these people? How can I beautiful? What's the most beautiful thing I could look like if I only get one wish Mm-hmm. What do I, I'm going to be specific and I'm going to know exactly what I'm wishing for. Yeah. And she has this image of herself at the end of the song. Cause she said it's called all to pieces because she loves all of these women all to pieces, you know, for their beauty, for their signatures. And when the song kind of caps off and it trails off at the end, because while Monty and Flick are listening for most of it, the song as Violet gets to the more, Uh, It gets to the meat of it when it gets to what she really wants. Everything else, everything else is almost immaterial. What she wants is for someone 
to notice her and love her in the way that she loves all these women. And when she gets to that, as it gets softer and sadder, that's when Monty and Flick stop listening and have their own conversation about baseball. Um, is it baseball? It sounds like baseball. It, it must be baseball. Yes. Yeah. It's a, Eight it's games a, out with 30. No one plays that many games other than baseball. Okay. I don't know. I, Eli, I don't know sports. My brother was captain of the high school football team. So I do know an amount about sports. Okay. You're an ally. I, I, I know that there are many balls and many runnings and many innings and the things and the stuff and the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There uh, are, there are balls and innings and things and stuff and people that is all correct. See, I know things sometimes, but I feel like Violet has this image in her head of how she, in the way, like in a movie, when a woman comes on, when a movie star comes on screen and is, everything is sort of in line where they are so magnetic and yes, physically attractive, but also shot in a way that is just so stunning. And then everyone in the movie kind of gravitate towards gravitates towards them violet wants that for herself she wants for once to everyone to look at her because she's just so stunning and i'm sure you know has gone to the movies so many times and has mimicked those moments where you know audrey hepburn comes down the stairs in funny face in the red dress where uh grace kelly shows up in rear window looking stunning i mean uh a more modern example for anyone who's seen it the new west side story when Rachel Zegler's at Dance at the Gym. First of all, Steven Spielberg has shot Rachel Zegler in a way in that movie where it's just like, clearly you want to make her a movie star because she looks, in every single shot, she looks like a painting. And specifically Dance at the Gym, there's like a spe- there's a specific shot where she like looks over her shoulder and the way that it's lit, the way that she's costumed, the way that the camera is angled, you're like, there we go. That is our next, that yeah. is our next leading lady. And you can imagine if Violet today were to see that movie, she would see it nine times and she would look in the mirror and she would try to perfect that looking over the shoulder move because she wants someone to look at her the same way that the camera looks at Rachel Zegler. And it is very um, understandable. I can't imagine anyone who doesn't want something like that in their own lives. And it's also heartbreaking because it's not realistic. You know, a movie's a movie because it's a movie. Because it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's not life. A movie star is a fantasy, right? A movie star is not a person. Movie stars are people that got turned into, uh, you know, ideas and, and, and as you said, fantasies. And that's something that Violet can't really connect with because as far as she's concerned, everything is a fantasy because she's been denied so much. So why not, you know, if everything's a fantasy, a movie star is just as easily attainable as anything else in this world for her. So she might as well go for the unrealistic that actually sounded rather profound that was great that's i didn't really mean great. to i didn't mean to so this is this is why i talk as much as i do because for everything i say that's utter bullshit and makes no sense sometimes i put words together and i go that is a diary entry and Lay Down Your Head, I think, is 
a really moving number. I think that that when this idea of her her being able to connect to someone and having this moment of connection that she doesn't necessarily know how to have, but then also still feeling like something is missing, I think really hammers home so much of that, of how Monty has changed as a character in the show and what Monty means to her and that difficulty of not knowing what she means to other people and thinking thinking herself constantly of as someone who's not attractive enough to be looked at. And I think that one of the things that Lay Down Your Head makes me think of too is just this idea of this act of him putting his head in her lap, this idea of him putting her head down, him not being able to look at her and therefore he cannot see the pain and therefore she can be good enough as long as he doesn't look. And mm. I think that that's heartbreaking in a such a specific and beautiful way. Yeah. Well, so lay down your head is actually, I think the first song they wrote for the show. And it came from a yeah. moment in the, it came from a moment in the story when they're on the bus and Monty falls asleep and rests his head on her shoulders and sort of stays there for a long period of time. They moved that moment to after Monty sleeps with her. And this is not going to sound great at first, but stay with me. Yes. Much as we should not put stock in what other people think of us, much as you know, we should not give into sexuality for a sense of worth, there is something to be said for your self-esteem when someone looks at your naked body and not only says, you know, doesn't run for the hills, but goes, absolutely, I still very much would like to have sex with you. Yeah, that it does something because you're you're not hiding behind any clothes, any makeup, any lighting. It is you and your ultimate, like n- most natural. Sex is also one of the most vulnerable things you can do because you are giving into what your body will just naturally does. There cuts to be a point with sex where you are you cannot joke your way into see into you know seeming more uh, sexy about it. You cannot do anything that um, can towards anyone's view of you. You're just eventually getting to a point where you are, your body is just going to let go of any inhibitions. And for someone like Violet, who has all these walls to not only have someone like Monty will want to do all of that with her, but then afterwards stay the night with her it's a sense of intimacy that I think she never expected. And they talk about, you know, he's not the first person she's ever slept with and they don't elaborate it on much in the show. In the story, her sexual past is mostly bad. Like she's had men, but it's never been good for her and they don't really stay. So the fact that Monty has stayed adds a level of, um, emotional catharsis that I don't think she was prepared for. And it's such a quiet, humbling moment, uh, which then also taps into Promise Me Violet when they're on the bus and he's heading out with Flick and he's originally going to sort of let her down gently, which is what she's expecting. And then he makes a heel turn and says, actually, no, it's not a heel turn because he's not a heel, but it makes an about face and then goes into this earnest plea to make sure that they actually see each other when she gets back. What do you, so what do you think is going on in Violet's brain during Promise Me Violet when Monty is making a very earnest uh, attempt to get her to agree to see him again? Because she's I mean, silent think, the entire time. I think she thinks he's playing her. 
Mm-hmm. I think that she thinks he's lying. I think that she thinks he's trying to trick her and like she's going to play some sort of prank on her because that's what I'm sure has happened to her past that men have said this to her. And, you know, it's like the it's like the in dog fight where, you know, it's the bring the ugliest girl to the bring the ugliest girl to the dance competition. Um, and this idea of that of the men are terrible and treat or have treated her like trash. And that's just what she, she expects. And so even though there's this person telling her that he cares about her that he cares about her earnestly and cares about her with and like values her as a human she's like no you just you just slept with me because that's what you wanted for me now you've gotten that and you're saying this because you're never going to see me again so you're like oh well at least you know make her feel good about herself and then i'll come back and you'll be gone and you won't be here and i'll never hear from you again yeah it's almost like a don't hope for too much because if you do the heartbreak is even worse than if you expect pain in the future you know don't like don't i don't know i have no end to that sentence i was just going to re basically reword what i previously said but no i, I it's agree in spider-man you. far from home where mj keeps saying you know if you set yourself up for disappointment you'll never be disappointed i haven't seen that movie you you haven't seen spider-man far from uh, not far from uh, no way home not far from home you haven't seen bridget jones's diary so there we go because i was three when it came out first of all that is homophobic. Second of all, Netflix is a thing, Eli. I thought we were going to talk about how severely older I am than you. This is all a hate crime. I am walking off this podcast, and now you're going to take over and just talk about it for the rest of the night. Don't worry. Don't sweat it. Go do something wrong, then move along. Because it won't weigh on your mind if you don't let it. It there is a song it's called let it sing oh i was about to say let it talk about let it sing what do you want to talk about with let it sing i i think let it sing is such an interesting song and such an interesting approach to the idea of telling people things that they are not ready to hear yet Mm. because to me that's what this song is it is you know seeing something like oh this is what you need to hear but not realize that the other person is not a place in not in a place in their journey in their life journey and wherever they are to understand that what you are saying is you know objectively the the correct thing that they need to figure out but that's not what they want right now and no no amount of you telling them that is going to make them figure that out and maybe you can you know implant a seed of it but i also think that it because you know she doesn't really know flick and flick doesn't really know her it comes across as very shallow and very simplistic and very dismissive of her experiences and of her trauma and what she's been through. And I think that it does, it's a great character introduction for Flick, really helping us understand who he is and what his values are and sort of grabbing life, you know, by grabbing life by the, I'm, I don't know what you grab life by. I'm not, I, I, I sort of started this metaphor and didn't know where it was going. Is it by the horns, grab life? Is supposed to grab the bull it's by grab the horns. grab a bull by its horns. I'm like, grab life by the, I'm like, it's, I'm like, for some reason, it's like, you know, like, coat neck thing at scruff i guess i'm not really sure Crab life i'm not, I'm not really sure I'm not... like this i don't know i don't know Wait, where this was going is it first of all of is its this, neck scruff, first of all scruff is the, is facial hair yes no, i would like the, the scruff of its neck or whatever it is like for like you know cats or dogs picking up their and i'm i might be like fucking up words here i was about to say grabbing someone by the hair on their neck that is even more painful than the hair on their face unless you no, mean scruff I was the thinking, app 
Grab no, like I by the, mean by the, the app. Cat. I meant, you know, you know, like when like, you know, like mama cats, like pick up the little baby cat by like their neck and like carry them somewhere. I refuse to no. acknowledge the existence of cats. So I do dogs. Not it could be dogs. If okay. You're a dog dogs. And I'm a dog person. You know, when, like the mama dog, like picks up the dog by like the little back of the neck and like carries it over and puts it down because, you know, dogs don't, you know, babies don't listen and all that. It's like that idea. But I, that's that's not a, we're completely off track now. What I was talking about is he was like, the you know, podcast, Eli. we go off track a lot. He's he's very much so, you know, like uh, live life to its fullest. You know, don't miss opportunities, do things that you enjoy, have great experiences and, you know, love yourself. But that's that's not the life that she's lived. And that's not the perspective that she's had. And so it just comes off to her as like super tone deaf and dismissive rather than as someone who's genuinely trying to have a positive outlook on things and try to explain to her how she can live her life more happily. What's so fascinating to me about this song is that it is a rousing number. Yeah. It is, it is lyrically good. I would not necessarily say it's my favorite song lyrically in the show. I think Crowley has better lyrics and other stuff. Janine's music for it is fantastic. And when you have a really good singer like Joshua Henry, Michael McElroy do it, it just stops the show. And part of that comes from the fact that, you know, when they wrote this, it was very much a collaboration with the original flick, Michael McElroy, you know, he told them, you know, where his voice could go, what he could do, raising keys, changing melody lines, things like that. And so by tailoring it to him specifically, it allowed the song to really become even more musically expressive than I think it would have been if it was just generically written for any singer. And it's that thing, something that Janine to story musicals do really well is because they're usually so specific, they then become so universal because if you write something to be universal, it just comes off as a generic billboard, right? It's something that I have issues with, with actually a lot of um, Pascal Paul material of, of late. I, you don't have to say boo, but I don't like the greatest showman partly because I think it is very generic and it's like, be yourself, be yourself. Um, I just, I like, let's get in there. And something like let it sing is interesting because it is weirdly generic that way. It is, you know, open up, live life, all these things. And it's both rousing on a musical theater level and, but also not moving as a, on a human level, which is why it comes as early as it does and why it doesn't really affect Violet in any way other than the one line, two kinds of people in this world, some say yes and some say no, which she holds on to when it comes to, you know, staying in Memphis with Flick and Monty, going out for the night, sleeping with Monty. It's, you know, allowing yourself to have experiences. So the song does not affect her in a way where she has this mental change to embrace the rest of her life and become a new person, but rather just to allow for fun, fleeting experiences. And which, you know, then snowballs into her emotional breakthrough later on in the show. But I think it's interesting that this song comes as early as it does. I think a stupider audience member might say, shouldn't this be the 11 o'clock number? And if the show were a lesser show, it would be because then it would make Mon- it would make Flick the old, the wise uh, person of color character who comes in and imparts the wisdom that leads our hero Ooh. on their journey. Ooh. But it's not, but, it, but it's not, it subverts that expectation. It comes much earlier. It'll, it, What's interesting, the conversation that uh, Flick and Violet have before this song is actually more meaningful than the song itself, where yes. she talks about, 
where they talk about like what they see when they look at each other. And she says, I remember when you looked at me, like you had seen worse things that, and that weirdly made her feel more like a person. And when she talked, when she says to Flick, you know, when I look at you, I guess I see a man. And he interprets that as, you know, oh yes, no, I'm just like everyone else. She's like, no, no, I don't mean it like that. I mean, like you're an adult, you're a grown-up. You understand things in a way that other people around us don't. You have a maturity about you that I find very um, uh, engaging. Yeah, very, yeah, very uplifting. And that I think is a much more <laughs> moving moment than the actual big number let it sing where he's like believe in yourself this precious little really folks like us control but you can make the music from the simplest thing and you're the one has got to tend your soul you got to give it room and let it let it sing you got to give it room and let it sing you got to let um and i think what makes it uh, work on so many levels, again, because it is musical theater at its finest. It's just like, yes, big number. He sold it. It's great. And I and what a what a rousing song. Is that I do think he be- that the character of Flick does believe it, if only because what he, this song is what's sort of gotten him this far. And he's imparting this to Violet, not necessarily because he's like, I have all the answers, but rather like this has worked for me. Uh, and I think the, 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 the third act of this song is as big as it is because of the joy he gets in, in remembering what he's gotten out of this sort of mentality, less of, you know, don't you see Violet, how beautiful the world is and more sort of like, ah, God, (laughs) not to make flick a self-centered douche, but it's almost like that last third of the song is like, ah, God, I love me. Like. I love, I love who I've become. I love where I am. I love what this mentality has done for me. It's no, very but that's, totally, that's absolutely what it is. And very, it's very, you know, it's not, I love me. It's this, you know, sense of, I, I like, I'm living this happy, wonderful life. It's really great. You can come along and do it too. Like embrace, embrace this philosophy and be happy. And, and that's, that's not where she is. That's just not no. where she is. And that's not what's helpful to her right now. Which is not to minimize everything that flick has gone through up until this moment you know not at all but the fact that he's gotten this far is doing as well as he is for being a black man in the south in 1964 like there's something to be said for that journey and what and what it's taken out of him to get there um i the i love myself is not that wasn't real but it was uh, no 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 yeah it just it was it was it's a minor uh flick slash trixie mattel moment of just like tossing the hair god i love me but you know there's there's a difference between ego and confidence right yeah and i feel like what flick has here is confidence not ego monty has ego not confidence and violet is sort of stuck somewhere in the middle absolutely yeah well, uh, i think i think i think violet lacks either of them i think violet's just sort of very closed off to the world and very you know pessimistic about everything because of what she's been through and because of where she grew up and what she's experienced. Yeah. But the other thing about Violet is I don't, I don't want to make her sound dour. She's actually a very uh, engaging 
protagonist. And part of that, it comes from the fact that she is funny and intelligent, you know? Yes. And to be, to be humorous requires, um, an ability to see the world and recognize what's funny about it, which is very specific. Not a lot of, I don't want to say not a lot of people, not everyone has that, you know? Um, do you watch Drug Race, Eli? I am not a, I'm not a Drug Race person. I wow. know that I, I'm continuing to bat zero today. You love Spider-Man. You love sports. I just, I, I do not love, you... do not put words in mouth. I do not love sports. My brother was captain of the football team and therefore I know things about sports. I do not actively partake in the watching of sports. <laughs> I do not subscribe to that cult. Thank you very much. But I bring it to Drag Race for a second, just because when you, Drag Race, you know, drag is an art form that has many different avenues, right? And Drag Race is supposed to be a structured competition that embraces all of that by challenging these queens at various levels of- um, Of the craft. Of the craft, exactly. And so sometimes that's fashion, sometimes that's writing, sometimes that's performing. And you learn which queens really are able to kind of tap into their intelligence based on, on comedic writing challenges. Who's able to- look at the situation, find the humor in it, and channel that in a way that the majority of the room can understand as well and understand yeah. what makes it humorous. It's not something that everyone can do. And that's something that Violet is really able to do. Not necessarily what she says is funny to the characters on stage, but it's funny to the audience because we're on her journey with her. So she, when she recognizes and makes a joke about something, the fact that we laugh shows that, tells us subconsciously as an audience, that Violet understands a lot of the things that we're understanding as well. She's actually becoming quite a reliable narrator. She's a messy protagonist because she's human, but she's a, she's a more reliable narrator in the show than she ever was in the story or the movie. Yeah. Bam. I love that. I love me. Sometimes I say things and I go, I'm on a fucking roll now. We Halfway through this episode, I finally found my jam. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow color. You're the top. There are two things about being an audience member that is both really magical and really frustrating for me. One is we as an audience go into a stage show and we sign an invisible contract that we understand what we're seeing is not real and anything that they're doing storytelling wise, we buy into understanding that it's not real. I love that. The thing that's frustrating for me is it is very easy for audiences to judge characters and their actions from the comfort of their own seats. To sit in a, you know, either whether it's 200 or 1200 seat theater, sitting in your comfy jeans and sneakers, knowing that you're gonna go out and get a drink later, you watch a story and if a character does or says something that you don't agree with, it's very easy to sit there and judge them and go, well, they're problematic as X, Y, Z. And I think something that Violet does really well, both the character and the show, is it allows you to understand that every time a character messes up, it's not because the show itself is in trouble, but because the show is about people messily finding their focus, right? I mean, that's why the third song is called On My Way. We're all just on our journey. We're all on our way. We're all figuring ourselves out. And, it, and it's always giving little sort of knife twists every couple of minutes 
to go against your expectation. So you don't ever have anyone fully figured out and no one's ever exactly what you think they're going to be or where you think they're going to go. And I think that's a credit to the writing. I think it's a credit to how they adapted the story. And they even talk about when they, when they were working on this at the Eugene O'Neill Center, the first draft was essentially the story verbatim. And they went, we need to start veering away from this if we're going to make this work as a show. Yeah. And you know the whole third act completely changed and adding more of the father and whatnot. And then once they go from Playwrights Horizons to Broadway 16 years later, making adjustments there, you know, it's, it, it's not set. The show was never set really until I would say recently. But with all those adjustments with what both of them have learned in the years since making the show has just allowed it to crystallize in a way that I think is really um, impressive and is able to uh, avoid a lot of the pitfalls of shows like it, you know? I think that was really well put. Oh, that part I think I, I messed up, but I, I'm glad you think so. Um, the Violet is, is an interesting trajectory because it is, our, it is the fourth show in our Janine Tesori series, but it is technically speaking the first major work she has done. Now, right. I'm assuming you know why this is, why, why we're ordering it this way, yes? Because that's the order that they came out in Broadway. Yes. Yes. Viola was supposed to be Janine Tesori's debut as a composer on Broadway. They opened at Playwrights Horizons, very good word of mouth, some really strong reviews. It was the plan was that it was going to transfer. And then the New York Times review came out and it was damning. And I understand what Ben Brantley was getting at, especially if you listen to the original recording, as good as it is, it is a little slower, a little more lethargic and a little more heavy on, as, as, as we talked about, like the character of Monty and the character of finding yourself and believing in yourself. And, you know, there was also a lot of talk that people were annoyed that Susan Shulman, the director, never showed Violet's scar. It was left to the audience's imagination, which I think is a brilliant move because yeah. we just would get distracted by it. We would, we yeah. would fetishize it almost. And as an, and, you know, they talk about this with horror all the time, right? Uh, creatures are always scarier in horror movies when you don't see them, when your brain is imagining what it could be. It's why, you know, like something like Cloverfield, the reveal ends up being so dumb because everyone's vision of what the monsters were is much scarier than what they end up being. Same thing with Violet's Scar. Uh, but so the show basically died right then and there, even though they did win the Lucille Lortel, I believe they won the drama critics circle for new musical. They recorded a cast album from there. You know, Janine Tesori's path to Broadway was a little rockier, but she did eventually get there. What's interesting is every show Janine Tesori has written except for fun home was never fully embraced until the second time around. We saw this with Carolina change, you know, the revival comes out and all the critics were like, ah, yes one of the great masterpieces of the century. I'm like, remember in 2004 when you said that it was uh, frustrating and what I would argue was a better production, but Violet is something similar where a lot of the critics that were not taken the first time were almost falling over themselves in 2014 when it came out with Sun Foster. And that whole production sort of came about accidentally. It was Janine Tesori's first year doing off center with uh, at Encores. They needed a third show. The advisory team asked her if she would do Violet. 
she was like, we'll just do one night with a concert. She asks Sutton Foster, she'll do it. She says, yes. They go, okay, because it's a concert, we don't have a lot of rehearsal time. Let's maybe trim this a bit. Uh, we'll cut some music out. Just make it a little easier for everyone to learn and, and to present. So we'll do it as a one act. They do it. It goes over amazingly. Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband, they of Bunhead's fame. God bless her. God bless her. They were like, so um, we're bringing this to Broadway because people need to see this musical. And Janine Sorry is like, oh, could we maybe do some edits on it? They're like, yeah, sure. Do whatever you want to do. It's how we got the new song for Monty. Comes to Broadway with Sun Foster. Did you see it on Broadway with, with Sun Foster? I, I actually, uh, by the time when it was on Broadway, I'd never made a trip to New York at that point in my life. Where are you from originally? I'm from Chicago. Bitch, I am from Chicago. I really wish you watched Drag Race because you would have gotten that. Like I said, it's just zero for me today. I just, it- I'm, I'm getting a big fat F for this one. Oh, yes, you are. But it's fine. You've been a good, ho- you've been a good guest otherwise. Is Chicago just like the musical? No, not, not whatsoever. Damn, damn. It is, I was hoping- not, it's not the 1920s in Chicago. I know that must be shocking. It is. In my mind, it has stayed the 1920s all these years. All these years. Chicago is still still vaudeville, still all those things that we definitely shouldn't have gotten rid of when we did. Um, yeah. <laughs> Renee Zellweger is still around just drinking gin and, and singing drinking on gin all and shooting people, yeah. Um, That's my favorite kind of Renee Zellweger. Number one is Renee Zellweger shooting people in Chicago. Second is Renee Zellweger turning down Hugh Grant and Bridget Jones's Diary. A movie that you will watch. I will watch Spider-Man blah 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 home if you watch Bridget Jones's Diary. You can't, you can't watch Spider-Man No Way Home without having watched like all of the other Spider-Man films. I guarantee you, I can and I will. You're going to be sitting there like, being like what's, what's the big deal? I don't understand. There's so, there's so much fan service in it. Sure. And so I can watch it objectively as its own movie and go, just as I expected, trash. And everyone will be so upset with me because I haven't done any of the homework beforehand. And I'm going to exactly. just sit I'm going to sit there, arms crossed, and say, stupid, the people of Spruce Pine are stupid. <laughs> someone Just should make like that a Violet. Meme. Yeah, Just someone should make like that a Violet. meme. Violet's response to Spider-Man No Way Home, stupid. Stupid. <laughs> All the Marvel fans are stupid. Um, let's do one last talk of this show and then do some wrap-up questions. Uh, yes. What is something in this show that you admire from a writing perspective? As a writer, you look at the show and you go, I really like what they did here. The two things that I really admire about the show, one is just the musical build of On My Way, I think is so beautiful and so stunning. I think the way that she does the counterpoint in that one section of just creating these characters with that tune and the way that she builds those harmonies in, I think are really powerful, especially taking what you think is going to be this somber, quiet story and opening it up to like, there, we, especially with the context of the year that it's in of this, this is a changing world. This is a changing society that we live in and we are all going somewhere. And I think that that brings me to a second point of the way that the musical sits so effectively in its historical context and really doesn't shy away from it. It really embraces it and allows that to be part of the story of, even if there, it's not things the characters understand, it's things that we as the audience are able to understand. Like when, Monty talks about how he's shipping off to Vietnam. We're like, oh, you're not coming back no. because he doesn't have the context. Like, oh, it's not even a war. And, you know, it reminds me of a bit of, you know, ragtime, how ragtime talks about history with, you know, their weird clairvoyant child, which is a whole other conversation. Um, but 
<laughs> that <laughs> but, fucking um, kid. But I think that it's really powerful and speaks to the journey that she is going through. Also, you know, I talk, I start talking at the beginning of the conversation about the idea of, you know, bottom up history as opposed to top down history of this is, this is what our society was going through at that time and what our society continues to go through now of figuring out who we are and what our collective trauma is and how we can move forward even with that. Yeah. Something that is interesting with Violet, and I talked about this with Shrek as well. Weirdly enough, there's a connection here. We as a society have started to use trauma as um, a point of validation. Like I am certified to talk about, my opinion is, is necessary because of my trauma. And my trauma is what makes me uh, a more reputable figure. And trauma is something that you're supposed to work through. It's supposed, you, you never want to actually go through trauma if you can help it. And if you do go through it, you want to be able to work through it so you can alleviate yourself of that pain. It's never supposed to actually define you. And what's interesting is how we have started to use it as a way to define us almost like as, as like a blue check verified on Twitter or Instagram, right? Like this is what makes me a better person than you. And Violet and Shrek both kind of start off that way and then let go of the trauma, which allows them to move on with their lives and become better people. Uh, and that's also the case in you know something like Fun Home and not necessarily Carolina Change, definitely not in Millie. <laughs> None of those women kidnapped into sex slavery in Millie. <laughs> Have uh, have been given the opportunity oh. to let go of their trauma. Oh, that show! I adore that show, even with all the things about it that are like, okay. I was know? Trevor Graydon in that show in sixth grade. Were you? I was. <laughs> you said that in a way that just. I was Trevor Graydon. It's, I was. I was Trevor Graydon. I mean, listeners will already know this, but uh, I did that show too. And I guess, I bet you can't guess what role I played. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. It's, it's bad. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I, listen, I, I own up to it. I admit it. And I'm moving on from it. We're, we, are, we are learning. We are doing better. Do better than your past. That's what I say. In fact, that's a theme Very of true. Violet. Do better it than is. your past. Do better than your past. Move forward. Move on. Go on your way. Let it sing, one might say. I also do like the line, wayward hatchet. Um, good, good in all the pieces, she goes, um, if I had gypsy hair and a face to match it, no traces anywhere of a wayward hatchet. I'm like, that is, first of all, Brian. Great rhyme. Uh, match it, hatchet, great rhyme. Well fucking done, sir. Uh, every, there's, there is one line in like every Janine DeSori show, and it's not even her, it's, it's the lyric, it's where I'm just sense. like, yeah, I mean, I talked about the Shrek. Ass of mine is asinine, I think is so good. <laughs> Just a great rhyme. Um, formaldehyde and being rhymed in Fun Home is so good. It's They just, they, sometimes sometimes playwrights know how to write a good lyric. Um, Eli, some ra- rapid fire questions for you. Yes. With Violet. With the Violet. Tesori tune. What is your favorite song in this show? My favorite song in the show is On My Way. And not just because you directed it. Not just because directed, I just think it's a beautiful number. It's beautifully structured and is something that I definitely look to as a writer for just a wonderfully executed, structured, lyric music piece of opening. Yeah. Um, Caroline it or change it. 
Is there one thing in this show that you would really want to alter if you had your hands on it? I can't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I think that it's such a good draft with the changes they made for the Broadway run that mm-hmm. I, that I don't have anything to add at the moment. I'm not mad at, I'm not mad at that. I can't necessarily think of anything I would want to change. All the major changes I have from the original, they made for the, for the revised Broadway version. So I'm, I'm glad about it. Do you like the title of that section though? Carolina, Carolina change, change it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've had numerous people call me an idiot for that. Uh, and I own it proudly. Yeah, but I think, um, I think it knows what it's a title that knows what it is, you know? Yeah. Raise me up. Do you think this show was properly appreciated when it either first came out or when it came to Broadway? I think that it definitely wasn't properly appreciated when it first came out, but I also think that, you know, because of that and because of the fact they ended up making large changes for it to move to Broadway, that did a lot of good for the show and made it a lot better. I still think it's a show that is generally underappreciated and that I wish people knew more and did more. I mean, Violet is one of the great musical theater roles of the last 30 years, I would argue. I mean, if you were to ask me, first, there are like three dozen female roles in musical theater I would love to play just over the years. But if you're asking me like, of the last 20, 30 years, what's the number one for you? For me, it is Violet. It's the kind of role that I would love to play where you just, you get to go through all of the emotions. You get to have all of the colors uh, of the crayon box at your disposal. And it's also something that I think is challenging because you want to lean into weepy, you know, uh, emotional drama and it, the material won't let you. So you yeah. have to kind of, trust that and it's yeah. really difficult to do because you want to tell the audience what to feel but it's a challenging piece and i love it for that uh last question gimme gimme a revival please who would you like to see in a production of this show i want to see katrina link do it katrina lank katrina lank yeah hot take hot take interesting interesting there are many a gay out there after seeing company who would slap you across the face for that. Not me. I loved her in company. I no, I loved her in company. But speaking of tap dance kid, I ran into a few different friends in intermission and they're like, well, we all just saw company last night and uh, Katrina Lank. I'm like, her acting was phenomenal. You can go sit on a, yeah, sit on a toilet. I say, um, that's an interesting choice. I don't know if I ever would have thought of Katrina Lank. Uh, my original thought was Caitlin Kinnan and I like to see what she does with it. Caitlin Kinnan, alum of the podcast, Tony nominee for, for the prom, but prom. Yeah. Katrina would be good. Katrina would be good. I wonder if there's anyone else. Ooh, Jesse Mueller. I'd like to see Jesse Mueller do this. Jesse Mueller could do anything. Well, she From couldn't do Julie Jordan, but I don't blame her. I blame the direction. Everyone in that production was poorly directed. I've said it many times. Listen, you don't have to say boo. I've said it numerous times on the show. My favorite musical I was in physical pain from start to finish of that revival. The moment it began to the moment it ended. That's the worst feeling. That's truly the worst feeling. Mm-hmm. I went with um, a family member who was a Tony nominator that year. And she thought she was doing a good thing by taking me to see it. And afterwards, she said, you know, I cannot give you my opinions until after the Tony's map. But I'll just say this. I could feel the heat coming off of your body. What a great, what a great quote. What a great quote. The heat was coming off my body. Eli, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute blast. I love talking about musical theater. So, Well, I'll have to bring you back at some point. Uh, Where can people find you if you want them to find you? People can find me um, 
I still have yet to make myself an Instagram. I'm the one gay under 80 who does not have an Instagram, fun fact, but you can find me on Facebook and also at my website, um, elishawncohen.com, E-L-I-S-E-A-N-C-O-H-E-N.com. Um, and you can check out some music from my current project, The Chosen One, which is a musical about queer high schoolers. That sounds amazing. If you guys want to find me, I am on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. Uh, my OnlyFans is OnlyFans.com backslash Aaron Tveit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my god <laughs> no i don't have an only chance if i did have an only chance i would absolutely use that as my name just as you should yeah and just like wait for how many days it would take for it to get shut down i would just, i would do that with actually quite a few people i would do like aaron Tveit. i would do um like andy carl just like all all like the broadway straights that that would not want their names associated with OnlyFans in any way. No. So yeah, you guys can find me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You guys can find me on Instagram at Matt Coplick. I am technically speaking on Facebook, but that is not really the best way to contact me. Uh, check us back next week as we do the final Tesori show, Fun Home. And I do my rankings of the five Tesori musicals of my personal favorite to my least personal favorite, as well as the announcement of the next series on the podcast. Very exciting stuff. Uh, if you like podcasts, guys, give us a nice five-star rating or a little review. Subscribe to us. Every little bit helps. We know that that algorithm is real and we are a slave to it. Eli, we close out every episode with a Broadway diva. Um, or off-Broadway diva, diva, usually associated with the show in some way. Who are some of your favorite Broadway divas? Throw them out to me. Are some of my favorite Broadway divas? Um, I mean, I love classics. I love Bernard Peter. I love Stephanie J. Block. I love Jessica Bosk. All, all some of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Who else? Hold on a second. Have I not done... Okay. Here's a fun one. I have not done Julie Andrews. Though I have, oh. though I have done Sarah Jessica Parker. The other one you could, I was going to say you could do uh, Judy Garland, but I'm assuming you've done that before. Yes, I haven't. I haven't indeed done Judy Garland. Actually, I don't think I've done Judy Holiday, and she's referenced in uh, on my way. There you go. Hair full like of Judy curls, Holiday. Head full of curls like Judy Holiday. Um, mm-hmm. I, do I have done so many episodes, Eli, that at this point I have to look through my document. Three I'm times. glad that you have a document for it for the which divas have I used. So we are going to do Judy Holiday. If you don't know who that is, get educated, you uncultured fucks. Uh, and yeah, sorry, that was the longest way to get to the end. And yeah, check us back next week for the end of Tesori Hour. See you next week, guys. Bye. Six foot seven or three foot two has the eyes of brown or baby blue, big and mighty or underfed, trim black mustache or beard of red. Can he dance like Fred Astaire? Is he dark or is he fair? Pompadour or not a hair? Well, I don't care. I'm in love with a man. Plaza O double four double three. It's a perfect relationship, and that's how things should always be. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.